We continue today in our series on God, grace, and money. And we said last week that the topic of money in the church can make us a little bit squirmy, a little irritated, a little uncomfortable at times. Yet it's a topic that we cannot skirt. Why? Because it's something that permeates the teaching of Jesus and the wider testimony of the Old Testament and the New Testament. In other words, knowing God has everything to do with our attitude towards money and material possessions. And so our eyes shouldn't roll and we shouldn't wince when we hear that we're going to talk about money. In fact, to the contrary, if you're in a church, including this one, where your pastors never talk about money, then you should be concerned. You should ask why. You better believe Jesus would. If you're a guest today, have no fear. We have not invited you here to shake you down. <laughs> to the contrary, we want you to receive. And we hope that what you hear today will give you a better sense of what it means to live a Christian life. Now, last Sunday, we looked at Matthew 6, and Jesus warned us about the dangers of mammon. That's the Greek New Testament word for money. And in Matthew 6, Jesus personifies mammon. It doesn't, mammon doesn't just mean the green. Right? It means a whole lot more than that. It, it, Jesus used it to refer to a force, to a system that seeks to supplant God in our lives. Mammon, mammon craves to be the basis for human well-being and security and stability and peace of mind. And that's exactly why Jesus depicts it as a rival Lord. It's a rival Lord. Jesus wants to free us from that lordless power, mammon. He wants to free us from it. And he wants to free us for something else. He wants to free us for a life that is beautiful, a life that is filled with sharing, a life that is astoundingly generous. That's what he wants to free us for. Jesus is always freeing his people from things and freeing them for other things. That's how the Bible works. That's how God works. So let's dwell here for a moment. Generosity. Generosity is a major, major theme of the Bible, even if we don't always think it is. See, according, according to Scripture, to be part of Jesus' community if you're in a real relationship with the living God, generosity should be so deeply within you that it pervades every area of your life. Generosity should be so deep within us that it pervades every area of our life. God says that if, if you really know Him, that's how it'll be. That's how it'll be. And so Christians should be a sharing people. Christians should be a giving people. That's how the world knows that we belong to God. Our generosity should be proverbial. And at the church's truest moments, it has been. It has been. We need to think about this. We need to embrace this. We need to be this. Right? That's the message that burst forth loud and clear from Paul's letter right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. That's the essential message of today's sermon. God is calling us to make change. How do you like that double entendre? Make change. Now 2 Corinthians 9, if you've got your Bible, open it up or follow along on your handheld. 2 Corinthians 9 gives us inside access to the, some budget committee meetings at the church in Corinth. Paul is asking this church to provide money for the needs of other Christians. He's asking this church to support Christian ministry elsewhere. That's what's going on. Now, most sermons on this text tend to focus on the particular historical circumstances of the, the letter to Corinthians. They kind of focus on that. I want to take a slightly different strategy today. I want us to eavesdrop on Paul's words here so that we can tease out a few timeless hallmarks of a, of a truly Christian attitude towards money and material possessions. 
Now, in this exploration, we're going to do three things. We're going to identify the key traits of Christian generosity. We're going to learn about a Christian theology of material goods. We're going to have a little theology lesson today. That's good for the church. And number three, we're going to discover the secret to radical sharing. Un, deux, trois. Comprenez-vous? My, my wife, she's been working with me, you see. Okay, the traits, of, the traits of, of Christian generosity, the key traits of Christian, Christian generosity. There are several things to note here. Before we glance at these verses, however, I want to tell you a story. It's a story I read on my preordination retreat last September, and ever since I read it, I've been wanting to share it. It's kind of like a sunset. You see it, but you need someone to enjoy it with you. I want you to enjoy this story with me. I want to introduce you to, Bish, to, to Francois Mariel, also called Bishop Bienvenue. In English, that's Bishop Welcome. Bishop Welcome. Now, many of you are probably mildly familiar with Bishop Welcome. He's a minor but crucial character in Victor Hugo's novel, Les Miserables. That, was, that, was, that wasn't bad, was it? <laughs> Les Miserables. Crucial character, right? He is a magnanimous man if there ever was one. If you've seen the stage play or the film Les Mis, right, you have some idea about this, but there is more. The novel paints a stunning picture. As the bishop comes into the plot, for example, right, he's been in his diocese, his region, for nine years, and his life during that nine-year period has been a profound blessing to the people who live in that area. Let me illustrate for you. I'm going to take a few examples out. When the bishop first moved to his diocese, when he first took up his post, he discovered that a terrible mistake had been made with regard to his housing. He'd been given the keys to a stately home, a sort of a small palace. That's what bishops often lived in at that time. And he was informed that this palace was to be the abode for, the, for himself, for his sister who lived with him, and for their cook, the three of them in this palace. Now, next to this palace, there was a much smaller building. That was the hospital for the village, and 36 people lived in that small building. So the bishop saw this. He went next door. He found the chief doctor, and he said, there's been a terrible mistake. I have your house, and you have mine. They did a little reshuffle. That's where he lived the rest of the time. You keep reading in the 15 chapters that are devoted to Bishop Welcome, right? And you, re you read a discussion of, of how he set out to regulate his household expenses, right? Regulate his household expenses. It, it seems that at that time, Bishops received a very generous salary. He, he earned 15,000 francs a year. That's 210 Canadian today, 210,000 Canadian, a good salary. Bishops were supposed to live well, but this bishop redefines what it means to live well. The novel contains a very detailed report of his personal finances, right? They say the devil's in the details, eh? Well, God's in the details, too. Let me give it to you. This is, these are his household expenses. 1,500 francs to the seminary to train ministers. 100 francs for overseas ministry work. 100 francs for the Lazarus House charity. 200 francs to train ministers for overseas parts. 150 francs for the local church. 100 francs for the preservation of holy sites in Israel. 300 for the charitable maternity, charitable maternity society, 400 to make French prisons better, 500 to relieve and deliver prisoners, 1,000 to relieve the families whose fathers had been put in jail for debt, 2,000 to boost the salaries of the teachers in the area who didn't get paid very much, 100 for the public granary, that's like the soup kitchen, 1,500 for a society devoted to giving women without means education, 6,000 for the care of poor people in the surrounding villages, and 1,000 for personal expenses and living. 
That's the bishop's budget. That, those are his household expenses. Victor Hugo doesn't say he's generous. He doesn't have to. Right? That's like a reverse tithe. You keep 10 and give away 90. It's also worth noting that this particular bishop at one point requested an extra travel allowance from his superiors. When he became bishop, he not only got a stately home, but he got a very luxurious carriage and so he could ride around the diocese and visit people. Right? So he requested a little travel allowance. And he risked some bad press for that because people thought, oh, he's, these bishops are so extravagant. But guess what? He got that allowance and what did he do with it? He gave it promptly to the Society for the Orphans and the Foundlings and he walked around his diocese on foot. This is a man of astounding charity, simplicity, hospitality. It's all part of his extravagant generosity. His table was always occupied by people who couldn't invite him back over. In the course of his tenure, a lot of money passed through his hands, but there was never any change in his lifestyle. Like water on dry soil, no matter how much money he received, he never seemed to have much because it always flowed through him to other people. His front door was always unlocked, much to his sister's consternation. But that is how he met Jean Valjean one night. And if you know the story, you know that that is how the bishop's radical sharing impacted another life that became known for profound generosity. Victor Hugo says this man has a grandeur of soul. Now this bishop is a portrait, one among many that we find in church history and even in the world today, of the meaning of Christian sharing. Right, what we see here is a very authentic depiction of a life that is infused with the grace of God. Let me note something here. You don't have to replicate his life exactly to be generous, right? It, the bishop's life is not a mold for us, but it, does, it is a vision. It is a vision, and it is a life that moves us. It's a very moving part of the novel, right? It's a beautiful story. Why? Because we see redemption in it. We see a more excellent way. We see the world becoming a better place. We see darkness receding in the face of renewing light. According to Jesus, our lives, me and you, can and should produce similar stories. That's a wonderful thought, but it's also an overwhelming thought. If you feel a bit overwhelmed right now, let me say it's okay, right? It's natural. From one angle, what Jesus is calling us to here seems a bit unreasonable. It seems a bit undoable. I mean, it's a call to astounding, radical generosity, which is precisely why God has to help us. Precisely why God has to help us. We're going to come back that, to that later. But for now, I want you to keep the bishop's story in mind, right? As we turn to 2 Corinthians 9 to explain the scope of Christian generosity and to begin to think about what makes it possible. All right, so 2 Corinthians 9, let's turn our attention to God's Word. And there's three things here in the first point, three key traits of Christian sharing that Paul lays out in this passage. The first trait, Christian sharing is expansive. It's expansive. Look at verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. And then look at verse 8. So that having all sufficiency in all things, you may abound in every good work. For the people of Jesus, generosity is never to be compartmentalized. Right? It's never just to be reduced down to one or two little areas of our life. It's to take expression everywhere and in all sorts of ways. Sharing is not just paying, uh, making a charity donation or giving money to the church, right? It's not just about paying your taxes. I've met people who say that. Right? Christian generosity should be seen in our hospitality, our relationships, our tipping, our work, our interactions with strangers. Right? That's the gist of these verses. 
it should be expansive. And let me say something now for those of you who are either in the marketplace or are aspiring to work in the marketplace. A little bit of application. Sometimes the church is given the impression that your sharing comes chiefly in the form of giving to the church or to charity. Right? That's not untrue, but there's a lot more. There's a lot more. You have, you have the capacity to radiate God's beautiful generosity in transformative ways that somebody like me or Alistair or people who work in the church will never have. You have that capacity. Can I give you an example? Do you have a choice? Last week I learned about an American businessman called Don Flo. Don Flo took this to heart. He owns a bunch of car dealerships in the U.S. and he decided to do some research on the, his car sales. He learned that the people who tend to pay the least for cars, white males, are the people who can often afford to pay the most. And he learned that those who pay the most are often the ones who can afford to pay the least. People with less education, limited negotiation skills, and limited discernment. So Don was convicted by this. It was wrong to take advantage of the least able. God's always doing the opposite in the Bible. And so he restructured his business, put a pricing system in place that does not bias against the underprivileged. And he told all of his sales reps that they are to treat every customer in their dealings like they would treat a friend. The fingerprints of God's generosity are all over this. You can make stories like this too. You can. Second key trait of Christian giving, it is voluntary. It's voluntary. It's expansive. It's voluntary. Look at verse 7. Each must give as he or she has decided in heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Church budget committees don't always like this verse. What Paul is saying is straightforward. God wants each of us to want to give. Right? He wants our sharing to be joyful. In other words, Christian generosity isn't just about an act. It's about the heart. It's being swept off our feet by doing it. Now, the voluntary quality of Christian generosity, it has a couple of implications. Let me, let me communicate two of these. Implication number one, this is for church leadership. It means that, that when church leaders talk about giving, we don't resort to guilt. We don't resort to guilt, right? Guilt undermines cheerful generosity. God does not want this community to be generous with a begrudging spirit. We don't like that. God doesn't like that either. That's why when we talk about our church budget and ongoing needs, our goal is to inform, not to guilt. It's to educate, not to coerce. Okay, we're, we, we try to be very careful with that commitment. Maybe we don't always do it perfectly, but that's what we're trying to do. Now, to be sure, we pray and hope that everyone in this church would desire to, to give, to support the mission. We yearn for you to have joy in this. Right? That's a sign of a healthy and vibrant church. But we trust in God. We trust in God. We trust in Christ's capacity to keep this St. Peter's going, our mission going here, while we're being formed into a community that is marked by habits of radical generosity. And let me tell you, baby, Christ has earned that trust. He has earned that trust. Over the past few years, I've had the great privilege, along with a few others, of seeing unsolicited, astounding gifts come from people inside and outside this community that have made it possible for us to be here today, made it possible for us to do Alpha starting in a few weeks. That's beautiful. You have no idea. That is beautiful. There has been no arm twisting in that. There has been no arm twisting, right? God has provided in miraculous ways through human hearts that have been touched by the grace of Christ. 
That's God's business. That's what God's doing. And so we don't have to resort to guilt. Right? We preach the gospel and we pray, and we trust that God will continue to form us through His Spirit into a community of voluntary, exuberant generosity. And I hope and pray that we can pay it forward one day. Now, the second implication of, give, of giving, sharing that's being voluntary. When Paul says that our sharing should be something that we want to do, he does not mean that we should only do it if and when we find ha happiness and delight in doing it. Okay? If you go back to chapter 8 and read verse 7, this is what Paul says about generosity. He says, it's an act of grace that we must work to excel at. That's what he says. In other words, the joy of giving is a bit like the joy of exercise. When you first start, it don't feel so good. But with time, your desire to be healthy translates into delight about the habits and practices of exercise, right? And then you like it. So too with generosity. It starts with a God-given desire, and then it leads to practices of giving, and with time, your feelings catch up with that desire. That's how, you, that's how we become cheerful givers. Now, a quick bit of application on this point. On the one hand, this is what I'm about to say here is dangerous and it's going to be surprising to some extent. If you have absolutely no desire whatsoever to give, if your heart is empty of any desire to give, then don't. Don't. But come, let me pray for you. Let me pray that you would receive from Christ. That he would give you that desire, and he will. I know he will because he did it in my life. And I'll tell you about that story later if you want me to. On the other hand, if you've got a desire to give, but you, you're, you're experiencing inner resistance to it, then come, let's talk about practices that can help you actualize that desire. Right? There are things that you can do. There are things that I have done that God can use us to help finish 2016 as people for whom being generous makes us salivate as much as a good meal. You believe that can happen? It can. Third trait of Christian giving it's sacrificial. Look at verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead and arrange in advance for the gift that you promised so that maybe it may be ready as a willing gift, not an exaction. Now, some of you might be thinking that that verse seems to contradict what Paul just said about the voluntary nature of giving, but it doesn't. Let me explain. Commentators note that this verse and this little section in which this verse is situated indicate that the gift that the Corinthian church was going to make was a substantial gift. It was a big gift. It was a sacrificial gift. And whenever a lot of sacrifice is involved, and we know this, humans have a tendency to second guess. Paul wants to make sure that their radical gesture of generosity, that big promise, does not get smothered by the familiar fears and worries and anxieties of this world. In all of this, we see the, the third key trait of Christian sharing. It should be sacrificial. It is the sacrificial quality of our giving that matters more than any percentage or sum. You get that? The sacrificial quality matters more than any percentage or sum. That's why Jesus commends the widow's might in Luke chapter 21. Wasn't a lot, but it was hugely sacrificial. In other words, we can give of our time and money, but not be generous at all. That's possible. Sacrifice amounts... Sacrifice is the condition for, for Christian generosity, for authentic generosity. Now, how does that hit home? It means that our, that our giving, our outward generosity is a necessity. It's not an optional extra. It's not a tack-on. That's not how we can think about it as God's people. 
What is actually optional, what is actually negotiable, is the money we spend on ourselves. Right? Now, that is the, thinking like that is the opposite of how people, including many Christians, tend to approach this subject, right? But Jesus is calling us to a reversal. He says, I want you to forego your, forego your own wants, your own comforts, for the sake of Christian generosity. Let's ruminate on this for a moment. Let me tell you a story about a cow. There was once a cow farmer. One evening, one of his cows gave birth to twin cows. He was very happy because that was potentially very profitable. If you're in the cow business, you know this. I'm sure many of you know that. <laughs> he ran inside to tell his wife. And in that instant, in, in this celebration moment, he, the farmer had a very magnanimous moment. He said, in gratitude, I want to keep one cow for us, and I'm going to devote the other cow to the Lord. And so when the cows get bigger and we sell them, I'm going to give that money to the local church to support ministry. Now, a few weeks passed. And the farmer came into the kitchen one morning with a very sullen face. He looked at his wife. He said, the Lord's cow died. His, his wife said, well, you hadn't picked them yet. How do you know it was the Lord's? Oh, yes, I had picked them. I picked them the first day. It was the Lord's cow that died. It's always the Lord's cow that dies. We have our personal priorities. And when things go awry, things that are outside of those priorities get let go. Jesus is saying, got to turn that around. Christian generosity is a necessity. It must be constant, and therefore it will at times be sacrificial. Do you see this? Now this principle, this principle of sacrificial giving, I want you to see it hails directly from the example of Jesus Christ on the cross. Right? He gave it all. Jesus gave it all. Right? And it's hardly rocket surgery to see that you cannot follow someone like that who gave it all, and not live a life that is marked by dazzling generosity. I mean, if you're trying to do that, then that's about as bad as being a Ford salesman while you drive a Honda. Don't, you're a joker. Don't be a joker. Okay? That's how it works. I'm going to turn now to the second big point. Little, do a little theology of material goods. As we sit here this morning, there are millions of people receiving material kindness from God's people all around the world. There are people eating meals, there are people being clothed, there are people getting medical care and education. The church is still the number one provider of those last two things. That's happening right now. And then other people in other parts of the world, they're traveling and marveling at great cathedrals that Christians in times past built. Right? The material generosity of God's people around the world is stunning. It's stunning. What's going on with this? How does all that fit together? We need to do a little bit of theology here. We need to try to tease out key theological points that are at play, animating everything that St. Paul says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Right? So let me just make two observations theologically. First, a Christian is someone who knows that all the material goods that we have in this world are received from God's love. All of them. Everything is from God's love. That's the gist of verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower will supply and multiply your seed. See, after God created the world, according to the Bible, he went to Adam and Eve and he said, I am giving this creation to you. I'm giving it to you for you to enjoy, for you to nurture. At the heart of that story is the recognition that everything we have, everything, is an expression of God's generosity. Everything. That's the heart of a Christian understanding of material goods. Alas, we humans came to see material goods as something to be taken, not to be received something to be grasped. We didn't believe that God was going to provide. That was the first temptation, and it is still a temptation for us. 
Yes, sir, it is. And so we become squirrely with our material goods and our money. We mistake the goods for life itself instead of seeing them as reminders of life from God. But God loves us. God loves us. And, the, and the, one of the effects of God's love is to bring redemption into this area of our lives. And that redemption involves making us once again receivers of the world as a sign and gift of God's love. Right now, Jesus Christ is working in the world to help us see and perceive the world as a gift given from his life to us. It's not something that we have to snatch and squeeze life out of. That's not what the world is. To be united by Christ in faith and in the power of the Spirit is to see that and to live in light of that. And that leads to our second theological point this morning. Christians see material goods not only as belonging to us, but also through us to other people. Through us to other people, right? We are made in God's image, and that means, according to the Bible, we are made to share. We are made to share. God's gifts to humanity are to be mediated to people through the church, through his people. We are, we are to participate in God's generosity, not just as receivers, but also as sharers. As sharers. If you go to the Old Testament, this theme is all over the place in the social vision of Israel. Right? Consider the gleaning laws, right? Farmers in Israel were not supposed to harvest every scrap of wheat from their fields. They were supposed to leave the edges so that poor people could come along afterwards and enjoy some of the bounty of God's creation too. Right? And that didn't just apply to wheat. I looked this up this week. It applied to the vineyards too, right? God is not miserly. He says, give the people a glass of wine as well. Bread and wine, those are always on God's table. That's why the Old Testament forbids the exploitation of immigrants. God's people are not to see immigrants as an opportunity to cut labor costs and boost their profits. Very clear. In the New Testament, that is why Jesus invites his disciples to help feed the 5,000. Right? He gets them involved in that. Gets them involved in sharing God's provision. Jesus could have done that alone, but he wanted them involved. That's how God works. God's people, us, we, acknowledge and participate in God's generosity by sharing then and now. And that is why Christian generosity, my friends, has sometimes been legendary. Sometimes been absolutely legendary. I came across a beautiful account from the second century church. It's from the epistle of Diogenetus. Let me read you a short excerpt about Christian generosity here. Christians find themselves in the flesh, yet they live not after the flesh. Their existence is on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They share their meals, but not their wives. They beget children, but do not cast off their offspring. They love all people, even when persecuted by all. They are in beggary, yet they make many rich. They are in want of all things, yet they abound in all things. They are reviled, yet they bless. They are insulted, yet they respect. In a word, what the soul is to the body, Christians are to the world. Now that is a depiction of Christian generosity at its best, the full expanse, bright. As a pastor at this church, I pray that somebody would, want, would sometime in the future write words like that about us. Wouldn't that be beautiful? According to God, it is sharing that makes us more human. Sharing, not keeping, not clutching. Or in home alone terms, when you make change, you're more human, but when you keep the change, you're a filthy animal, right? Generosity is part of how God heals and restores the world. It's how he rebuilds broken lives. That's the theology at play in everything Paul says here. That's why he writes verse 7, right? That giving should be cheerful and joyful. 
You may be limited in what you can actually give, but the thought of giving does not irk you. It does not irritate you. It doesn't make you resentful. It makes you joyful. It is a joyful thing. And it's also a thing that bears fruit. It bears fruit. Look at verse 12. This is what Paul says. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of others, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Hey, Paul is saying that sharing, right, what we do materially, our material giving, contributes to other people's spiritual well-being. That's what Paul's saying. Sharing is a form of evangelism. It's a powerful one. It allows us to recover the original vocation of Adam and Eve to bring fruitfulness and joy and delight in God into this world. Sharing. And so we come now to the last point, the elephant in the room, the secret of sharing. It's a big vision that God gives us, a big vision that Paul's laying out here. I'm going to put into words right now something that's probably in some of your minds, certainly been in mine the last week. Whoa, that's a lot. Christian generosity is intense. God's call is high. In fact, it seems, quite frankly, unattainable and undoable, unreasonable. I'm, I'm pretty sure there are people in this room who feel that way. I felt this way preparing this sermon. And so this, this leads us to the last question. How on earth is it possible? How do we embody the, de- the eye-popping definition of generosity according to Jesus? What's the secret? What makes it possible? Let's look at verse 13. They will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And also a part of verse 14. They long for you, they pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. We need to dwell on those words in closing. In fact, we need to dwell on those words a lot. That's why those words like that are all over the New Testament. We need to dwell on them a lot. In a word, the key, the secret to radical generosity is the gospel. And this gospel, as it's laid out in the New Testament, is nothing more than a declaration of God's utter present delight in you and a declaration of God's promise that you have an abundant, you and me, we have an abundant and radiant future. That's what the gospel is. You've got to know that. You've got to trust that. And only as that happens, and believe me, I know, can your life begin to concretely radiate the generosity of Christ. So in the first place, you've got to taste God's present, real-time, unalterable delight and pleasure and love over your life. You are loved. You are approved. And some of you don't feel that way at all right now, but you are. You are loved. You are approved. You are wanted beyond anything that we can really imagine. Hello, pilgrims, this is what Jesus means when he says, come to me and I will give you rest of soul. The verse from Matthew was incomplete earlier. It's rest of soul. That's what he offers. And that was completed, but on the cross, Jesus Christ said, it is finished. You need to know that we need to know more of that to be generous. To echo the the Mumford and Sons song, you need to taste this love. It will not betray you, dismay, or enslave you. It will set you free more like the person you were meant to be. Now, what I'm saying right here, right, what, what we're learning here from God may, may come as a bit of surprise, right? It defies what I call conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom says that you need more money to be generous. But in truth, that doesn't happen. Look at the statistics. You have Google. We tell ourselves that our generosity will grow when our access to money increases. But the opposite seems to happen. The more people make, the less as a percentage they tend to give. Look it up. 
Truth is, this isn't that shocking. I mean, think about it, right? If you don't really know you're loved, approved, that your life has significance and purpose, that you're a valuable human, you're going to scramble to self-validate, and that scrambling will consume your resources. And the more resources you have, the more there are to be consumed. That's how it works. That's the cycle. You may have a lot of money, but inside you're poor. You're poor. And so you use all of your money to try to buy status and education and connections and influence and security and self-esteem. You're all scrambling to prove that you matter. I know there are people like that in here. I have been like that. That is what we do apart from God's grace. And Jesus cuts through all that spending. And he says, let me give you what you're chasing after. And to the extent that we receive him, we have tremendous internal wealth, tremendous wealth. And when you have that kind of wealth, you can let go of money. Because you don't need to prove anything. You don't need to attain anything. That's what happens when the surpassing grace of God rests on a person. You want to be generous? Don't sit down with a calculator. Sit down in front of the cross. Ponder it. Ponder God's total commitment to you until it makes you want to love like he loved and give like he gave. That's how you become generous. God's grace funds our generosity, not money. You know that. And in the second place, we have to recognize that in Christ we have an abundant, radiant future. Like this is also a precondition for, for true Christian, authentic generosity, right? The, ge the generosity of Christ, we know it because we've just, we've just strolled through it here in the passage. It summons us to pour ourselves out for other people. It calls us to let other people into our lives, to care deeply for others, to go the extra mile, to befriend the friendless, to give incredible amounts of wealth away. There's no getting around it. All that costs. It will involve self-denial. It will involve lacking because of what we give up. And what does that mean practically? It means that at some time we're going to feel like we're missing out. We're missing out. Other people have money for this and that. But us, Christian sharing means that we're not going to have certain experiences. We're not going to have certain trips. We're not going to be able to live like that. We're not going to be able to dress like that. Now into that, very, that thought, which is very discomforting to many of us, and myself included, Jesus says, no. Don't feel like you're missing out because your future will be great. It will be a bright and shining future. It will be an embodied future. It will be a material future. And it will... You'll have ample occasion to take part in all those things that you, that you didn't get a chance to do. See, according to the gospel, according to the New Testament, this is sometimes lost in the church. Our future is not ethereal. It's not a disembodied existence. It's a new heavens and a new earth. And there will be feasting, and there will be time for sightseeing, and there will be more than enough for all. That's our future. The American theologian Jonathan Edwards captured that, that future hope in a brilliant way. Let me give you this analogy from him. He says, right now, we have five senses. He hadn't talked to Richard Sandlin, so he didn't know we have a few more. But he says, right now, we have five senses. But he says, in the future God makes for us, we're going to have a new body. It's going to be in a new heavens and a new earth. We might have a thousand senses. And our experience of reality, our enjoyment of reality, will be more than anything we can even imagine right now. I mean, compared to that existence, we're like vegetables right now. Are you afraid you're going to miss out by sharing? You're not going to miss out on anything. That's why we can share. That's why we can be conduits of God's generosity. So let's do it. Let's encourage each other to do it. Let's do it individually. Let's do it together as a community. Let's dream 
that when people in Vancouver hear about St. Peter's Fireside and the church at large, they might not always understand what we believe or why we believe it, but they marvel at our generosity. It leaves them stunned in the best possible way. They'll come to know and maybe even love the one whom we belong to. Make change. Make it again. Make it permanent. May we hear what the Spirit is saying to the church.